Hi, welcome to a new episode of The Adoption Files. Lynn and I welcome you to the fourth in our cult-like aspects of adoption series. Joining us today as our guest is author and adoptee Emma Stevens. Emma's second memoir, A Fire is Coming, was just recently released. We will make sure we include the link where you can find her book. And uh, we're going to start out with talking a little bit about what a cult is. So I know for me, the Oxford Dictionary definition as a cult being a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing, in my opinion, really applies to the adoption narrative. Lynn, kind of what are your thoughts on that? I like to think of it as a high control movement because I relate it more to adoption and I see adoption as a movement and a belief system around how it's um, unchallenged an unchallenged good for society and for children. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And then you had a question for Emma that relates to that idea of what a cult is. Yeah. So as the listeners may know, if they've listened to any of the other episodes, one of the reasons we started talking about these cult-like experiences is because we watched The Vow on HBO and listened to a little bit culty podcast. And as I was reading Emma's book, I was wondering, um, you know, it was a very vulnerable book to write and I don't want to give too much of it away, but I wondered, um, what prompted you to tell your story, Emma, and how you worked up the courage to share from such a vulnerable place? Mm. Well, hi, Lynn, and hi, Andy. So glad to be back and be talking to both of you about this topic, because I did just write a book that just fill, you know, just puts is right into the premise of what you're talking about. And um, I, the book that I wrote had nothing to do with listening to a little bit culty or listening to the vow that all came after. Uh, and it was great substantiation for me because um, I was comforted by hearing the exact things that I was feeling and wrote about when I started listening to that podcast. And I will give a shout out to Sarah Easterly, who was very vulnerable on a different podcast talking about a similar situation, a vulnerable situation that she attributes to being an adoptee. And um, when I heard that, it gave me permission in my own mind of thinking that I hadn't told my full story yet. I touch on the story in the first book, but I realized I had a lot more to say and a lot more healing to do. Um, so, when, after I wrote the book and then started listening to a little bit culty, that led me to learning about cult expert Yanya Lalich, and she was instrumental in uh, the court case with Nexium, and then she's actually featured on The Vow, but she wrote a book called Take Back Your Life, and where she's describing how we've often thought of as a cult as being a group or a big organization. And it really, all it takes is one sociopathic uh, malignant narcissist to be a cult leader. And it can be the cult of one-on-one -on -one abusive relationship. And so that really resonated with me. And she actually, at the end, she um, endorsed my book, A Fire is Coming. 
which I was very happy about. That's excellent. And I recently saw her on another show called Cults and Beliefs or something like that. And I saw her actually speaking to cults after um, I read your book. So I've actually seen her um, recently. And it's interesting about the one-on-one -on -one relationship because I follow Dr. Romani and she is a narcissism expert. And she defines, um, she talks about narcissistic relationships being a cult of two. So that, that concept really resonated for me as well as somebody who's pretty familiar with narcissistic relationships yeah. and the dynamics. Um, but I have to say that reading your book, Emma, this was a whole other level of narcissistic abuse of compared to others that I've read, other stories. And that brings me to another question. Um, it's truly remarkable to me that you were able to work through the shame of so many adverse experiences in your life. Um, I really feel that it's a remarkable story of healing, education about a topic very few people will ever experience, along with a warning to others about what I would call a predator in our midst. Would you... Um, explain to the listeners a little bit about what your book is about. Um, I don't want to ruin it for them. So share what you're willing to share. Well, I would say that I wrote the book, not only for my own healing, but also to create more, more awareness out there of what um, a situation gone wrong can look like, what a therapeutic relationship that has no boundaries. I know for myself, I had no idea when I entered therapy that um, if she were to be too interested in my life, if, uh, you know, just all kinds of boundaries of inviting me over uh, to her home for entertainment, all of that should have been a red flag to me, but I had no idea. I just thought I'm that special of a patient for her to be paying all this attention to me. Um, and you know, the thing about cults is that there's always an element of truth and that's how they hook you because you think what this therapist for me offered me was you no longer want to feel abandoned. And that's from me being an adoptee. And so she got me to buy into that. And once she had my Achilles heel, then all she had to do was disconnect my intuition and everything was, you know, she could just pretty much give me all these subliminal messages and I would, I would go for it. I would say, well, she must be right. She's a doctor. And I had no idea that I even had a right to interview her and say whether I wanted her as a doctor or not. Yes. It uh, sounds like you're describing love bombing and also the manipulation of preying on your weaknesses. Definitely. And yeah. she spotted it in an instant. And yeah, I'm just unschooled in knowing any of the covert hypnotic procedures and techniques that it's very studied. Yes. Andy, you wanted to ask something? Well, I was just thinking about, you know, what you, you said that you had this encounter with this person who immediately began preying on your, you know, your weaknesses, your areas of vulnerability and tying that into how um, you know you are an adoptee and i was thinking about 
how we're indoctrinated as adoptees to respect authorities, to not ask questions, to be compliant. And I was thinking about how do you feel like that tied in with you not responding to those red flags when they came up for you? I, I think I'll start that by saying I do understand that anyone could be indoctrinated by a sociopathic, um, narcissistic, you know, cult leader, cult-like leader. If they if they want you and they you they find your vulnerability, anyone could be subject. But in my situation, I feel that it was specifically the fact that I did have this primal wound of abandonment. And I understand that now, but back then I had no idea that was driving my bus. And um, that's the way she was able to have full entry into the agency of my entire life. So the being an adoptee had very much, you know, it just colored everything I had done in my life. And I really had no, I might be going a little off script here, but I had no pre-cult self because being adopted, relinquished, and then into a family that didn't treat me very well. Um, it was very totalitarian, authoritarian. So that's kind of how I thought relationships worked. So by the time I got uh, introduced to her and employed her, that just seemed like normal to me. I had no pre-cult self of strength to draw on to say, something's not right here. I mean, that makes perfect sense, Emma. You know, um, for the listeners, could you deep dive a little more on the pre-cult self? What do you mean by a self? How mm -hmm. do we as children get a self? Um, just a little bit of expansion on that would be great. Well, um, you know, as far as self, and I, and I can only speak as an adoptee because that's all I know. <laughs> I'll never be anything else. But I feel that my situation started in utero. I was an unwanted baby. And I do happen to, I'm fortunate enough to know my story. And it's not a beautiful story, but I do know it. And I know that in utero, I experienced um, some trauma. So was born into that and then left by my DNA mother, my birth mother, so there was the trauma there, then sitting in a foster home for three months until adoptive parents and the adoptive parents didn't know how to attune or attach. So I had a very, very disorganized attachment with my birth, with my adoptive family. So all of that, myself, you know, being me just never really happened yet. And it didn't happen until many, I mean, I could almost say seven years ago when a catalyst happened in my life where I had to de deconstruct, dismantle everything that I thought about, everything in life. And that was when I really met my true self for the first time of what do I like? What, what is my point of view? Um, how do I fit into this universe? What am I doing here? All of that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I can see when you were explaining, I, I could relate to all of it as an adoptee myself and Andi as well. Although the difference with Andi is she didn't know she was adopted, but having all those pieces, um, it makes sense that we kind of came into the world already vulnerable 
And if you had the disorganized attachment, then um, yeah, I could see where that would color your whole life. Mm -hmm. Well, and I find it interesting that, you know, even not knowing that I was adopted, I knew that I didn't fit. So the person that I felt like had to be suppressed in order to conform to the environment that I was a part of. And it sounds like that happened to you as well. Like maybe who you felt like you were, you couldn't express that in the environment that you grew up in. Yeah, very not much. I could not do that. I had to adapt into um, the person that they purchased me to be. Um, and if I were to not do that, then there was a lot of abuse going on there. So that's what I also meant by I had no pre-cult self. All I knew was to conform to an authoritative situation. And that went from my marriage to um, every romantic relationship I had into, you know, the, the therapist that had an open door to abuse me. So. I've heard it also be called a false self in other readings that I've done. Yeah. So we adapt and the joke in the adoption community, we're chameleon-like, we're adaptees, not adoptees. So I think a lot of people listening will resonate with that. Um, is there something special you think other than the abandonment um, issues that make adoptees more vulnerable to these types of narcissistic and cultic relationships? Yeah, what came into mind was just, we don't know what we don't know, right? And so all of my life, I can look back and see that I was just bumping into walls and not knowing why, choosing bad decisions and not knowing why. Um, you know, I did make some good decisions, but I made enough bad decisions where it really influenced the trajectory of my life. And it, it just... Um, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. That's okay. Is there other vulnerabilities for adoptees? Like the one I'm thinking right now is we're always looking for that mother love to replace the mother that we didn't know or possibly the mother that we didn't attach to. Um, it seems that you were look maybe you were looking for a mother figure in your therapist, possibly. Absolutely. And, and that was also very much part of the Achilles heel is that she learned early on, because that was one of my presenting symptoms when I went to her saying I needed therapy was that I was an adoptee. And I knew that there was something that I needed to get in touch with, but I didn't know if it had to do with anything or not. And so she took hold of that and said, well, think of me as the mother you never had. And that was, you know, remember that kernel of truth that we talked about in the beginning. Um, that really was a huge emotional hook into me because I was like that little bird looking for, are you my mother? But I didn't know what I didn't know. Now I understand my behavior. And, but as an adoptee, I think we need to, and why I wrote the book is to let other adoptees know this about themselves to explore and do their interior work and then get, you know, befriend their primal wound. So they're not susceptible to other people taking advantage of them. Yes. I can see that. And I think the book does a really great job of 
um, most people probably wouldn't experience something as extreme as you did, but I think we can all be vulnerable to a cultic or narcissistic relationship with a spouse, a friend, um, any kind of mentor, and um, hopefully not in therapy, but you've proven that it can happen in therapy. That's right. So, yeah, Andy, you have something to add? Well, I was thinking about, you know, that aspect of, of cult-like thought and cult-like behavior that involves our suspension of rational disbelief. And it felt like there were a lot of points in your journey with this abusive therapist where you had to suspend that rational disbelief in order to maintain the relationship, in order to be in that relationship. And I was wondering how did you eventually start to examine that like at what point did you look at it and go okay wait a minute what i'm feeling and what is happening don't make sense they don't line up with each other i think it was my uh, husband at the time was feeding me information um about what occulty kind of situation looks like and I was resistant at first I you know didn't want to hear what he had to say I felt like he was just jealous that um here's this woman trying to break up his marriage which you know I can understand he was fighting for his life and he would give me information about what is a cult what does it look like I mean Emma is she telling you to do this or that and then I'd have to say oh yeah she is asking me to do a lot of her personal errands. So anyway, just, it was a slow percolating thing in my mind, um, to finally get some clarity where it started poking through and it, it got to a big enough point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And at the same time, this psychologist was getting more and more bizarre as the days went on. So her mask was slipping way big time, which was good in my case because I was able to go, okay, you're not exactly who you presented yourself to be. And I was able to start gaining momentum. But even after I left, I was still sucked back in of thinking, oh, I can't you know, report her to the board of ethics because like she told me, it was all my fault to, to begin with. And so the psychological thing did not just presto go away. There were many, there were years after that that I had to get deprogrammed. Our adoptive parents might think, or what our adoptive families might think, or what our friends might think, because we're going up against the popular narrative. Like, I don't, I don't know, Lynn, do you guys both think like, do you ever find yourself hesitating to do something that's in your best interest because people might think you're a bad adoptee? Well, not anymore. <laughs> Hence Good this though. whole series, right? Yeah. But in the in you know, in the past, yes. Um I'm trying to think of an example of that. I mean, just talking about adoption as cult like is pretty brave, you know? Not trying to pat ourselves on the back, but what I'm saying is is that we've all 
experienced enough life and enough uh, cognitive dissonance and hopefully enough healing and therapy and anything else that we've um, support groups we've yeah. come out the other side saying okay now I can see it more clearly but um, yeah I think we all feel that pressure because we are programmed from a very young age to listen to authorities and authorities including our parents say adoption is good you know we listen to authority that you- and that power differential that you portray in your book I think is true and everything that we do as far as getting our records we're going we have a power differential someone in authority is withholding our identity someone in authority that you went to for help abused that help Definitely. And I also think that, um, you know, if you listen to authority, then you automatically don't have any boundaries. So you you, you don't even feel like you're uh, worthwhile of having a boundary. And so that was huge for me to learn at a later point in my life that I do have, you know, as if I have a right to have a personal boundary. Um, and now I have to hold it unapologet- unapologetically, which has been difficult also because people don't like it when you have a boundary yeah i mean culty culty and narcissistic relationships count on us to not have any boundaries right boundary jumpers they're boundary walkers and until we can build ourselves up and and have healthy boundaries i think we leave ourselves open to these type of people and then you add the adoption vulnerabilities on top of that um, yeah, it's like we have a sign on our head that says, please abuse me, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think it was brave too of you, Emma, to even talk publicly about what you experienced because there is stigma attached to people who get involved in these high control kind of situations and, there is stigma attached to speaking out about that, about uh, anything that goes counter to the adoption narrative. I mean, there's just a lot included that is uh, difficult for people to talk about. So Emma, I noticed when I was reading your memoir, which was excellent, by the way, I really loved it. it said a lot of times you had little italic red flags in there and um, a lot, it was always during your therapy. Um, some of the red flags to me were kind of obvious, like when she kept crossing your boundaries on in a physical sense, you know, by hugging you, um, getting too close. Like I, I felt the, the crossing of the boundaries. And I know now as your current self and writing the book, you could see the boundary crossing, but I guess my question for you is what, when you were feeling some of those red flags at the time this was occurring, um, what was, what was it that made you not attune to those red flags and believe that the therapist continued to have your uh, best interests at heart? I know it's very easy to hear all these stories about people that are you know, being indoctrinated by different things. And a lot of us will say, oh, that never happened to me. And if I read my own book, I'd probably be reading it saying, oh, well, there, surely she should have woken up there. But 
the best I can say is that I knew some things very consciously and other things were unconscious and the things that were conscious, I shoved to the back because of back to that kernel of truth. She had promised me um, attachment and she was going to be the mother that I never had. And unconsciously, I knew that that was a more important factor to me than me holding a boundary or being authentic. And so I, I think that that ratio of of what she knew I needed most was how she won me over and kept me there way longer than I should have. Um, it just took more time until I, you know, it started to equal out or even go to tip the, it very much tipped the other way of where I knew this person, I need to get away from her right now. Yes. And that makes me think of another question um, as it relates to your husband, Rick. Um, I know when you started to wake up, it was due to Rick's sending you information about cults and helping you to see that your therapist had a little too much control, using the word loosely. Mm -hmm. um, could you share how um, your relationship with Rick changed and anything you wanna share that wasn't in the book that might possibly help the listeners about your marriage? Well, I do try to state clearly that there were a lot of issues and difficulties with my relationship with Rick. And if you think of everything being on a continuum, um, and we're all narcissistic to a certain degree on that continuum. And Rick, he was he was up the scale into uh, more of closer where the therapist was. Uh, he had a lot of issues with you know, sense of entitlement and arrogance and deceitfulness. Um, so he got pretty jealous when he saw someone trying to break up his marriage. And yes, he should have been. But at the same time, it took him that much to break into his ego to realize, oh, no, I better make sure that um, I give her this information so she will break that relationship with the therapist and come back to me where she needs where she belongs. And he very much was had cult-like things of isolating me, uh, gaslighting me, on and on. But he was the lesser of the two evils. And yeah, I, you demonstrated so, that in the book. I, I'm still eternally grateful that that part did happen. Um, but we, I just didn't want to get cloud the idea that you know Rick was a terrific person. Yeah, I think you made it really clear as to what kind of issues you guys had before um, your therapist came into the picture. I was cheering right. for him. I'm like, yes, he's helping her. But then mm -hmm. later I thought, oh, you're also mad that the therapist has more control than you do. You yes. want your control back is what I was thinking as I was reading it. Is it exactly. Well, I'm glad I made that clear. Oh, it was clear. Um, I think we're going to switch gears to talking about uh, therapy. I'm going to hand it over to Andi because she has some questions that she has to ask. Okay, so we know that a lot of adoptees at some point in their lives recognize that they've experienced trauma or a lot of times we go into therapy for other issues. And then as, as we move forward in therapy, the 
way that adoption has impacted us begins to manifest in in the therapy you went into therapy knowing that you had uh, the adoption related traumas when you were looking for a therapist did you understand the idea that you were looking to fill a position like you were interviewing somebody for a job did you understand that when you went into this relationship with the therapist no <laughs> i i didn't even have a clue and i'll even say that i had just found my dna mother and father and even with the whole search that it took to find those two people, I was still extremely in the fog. And it wouldn't have been until 20, 30 years later that that out of the fog, you know, me understanding my whole life, that took much later. All I knew was I met this woman in my driveway. who She was my next door neighbor. She told me she was a therapist. And from that, that was my first red flag in that moment of feeling something's not right here, but yet I was mesmerized. And she promised me of, you know, I can help you. And so then it, it just snowballed from there. And she just kind of reeled me in and she was my next door neighbor and she never should have even accepted me as a patient, a client, as a next door neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we could talk about some boundaries just with with therapy. It, a lot of us, if we have access to therapy, and that is, you know, that's a big issue too, is a lot of people simply don't have access to therapy. And finding an adoptee competent or adoption competent therapist can be really difficult. Because, you know, therapists are just as vulnerable to the adoption narrative as anyone else to being indoctrinated into the idea that adoption is fantastic. Yeah. And therapists, a lot of therapists have seen uh, the trauma that has been inflicted on people as a result of being raised in an in an abusive environment and so it's easy for them to think it would have been better for this person if they had been adopted so we can run into that mindset when we're looking for a therapist from the very beginning like i know i've been told by therapists they're not my therapist anymore but oh you were so lucky to be adopted mm -hmm. You know, or adoption is great. That's fantastic. We or can or adoption doesn't matter because it was just an event, a one-time event in your life. Yeah. So you can run into that. So when you were talking to this therapist, did she at ever really at any point in your relationship with her acknowledge? your adoption trauma or attempt to help you to navigate it? Never, <laughs> never. <laughs> it did. She glossed right over that and went for the kill. That just wasn't on her radar. She was out to get me from the very beginning. There are adoption competent therapists out there 
who advertise themselves as being adoption competent, who make most of their money and most of their clientele who are adoption related are adoptive parents mm -hmm. or hopeful adoptive parents or kids who are the identified patient in the family because they're adoptees and they're presenting with all kinds of trauma, but they're acting out. And so they've been brought to therapy by the adoptive parents, not because the adoptive parents are recognizing that they're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. They they've identified the child as the problem and they want the adoption competent therapist to fix the child. So, so you have to be really careful when you go to therapy as an adoptee to know where your adoption competent therapist is coming from. So do you feel like through this whole thing, you know, you actually went to the steps of having your former therapist uh, going to court. Yes. And so do you feel like through this whole thing, you've developed some questions and some perspectives that you would want people to know if they're looking for a therapist? Like what kind of things would you say to an adoptee who's looking for a therapist? Well, I would think that one of the things that we can't, I mean, we try to be careful, but sometimes you can't be know things that haven't happened. For example, my therapist didn't have any former, former violations. There were no criminal charges. There were no, no other patient client had come forth because she had abused them to the point where they were psychologically unable to make a court statement against her. And so for me, let's say I didn't know about her and I investigated before I employed her, her record would have been clean. There would have been no indication that I was stepping into fire. Um, but nevertheless, you still should check with the board of ethics to make sure there are no citations Look at the health grade that you can look on on Google, you know, Google their results to see what kind of how many stars they have and what the comments are saying of, you know, they didn't listen to me, they uh, or they kept me for three hours and my session was only supposed to be one hour. I would say look for that they stay within the guidelines of the therapeutic boundaries and they're not either doing under uh, providing or over providing, you know, a therapist should never give you their home phone number or say, come over to my house anytime that just blurs the lines. And for it's, it's not the client's responsibility. It's the therapist's responsibility to hold those boundaries, to protect their client and to protect themselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. Lynn, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that right there is really good advice for pretty much anybody. And then we also have the additional barrier of finding an actual adoption competence, someone who understands how adoption affects children. They don't teach this when therapists and psychologists go through school. It's a very specialized area. 
So in addition to all the red flags of trying to avoid a, a predator, you also want to make sure that your therapist has the proper education, which I struggled to find someone. I was always put in the position to helping my own therapist understand adoption issues and mm -hmm. I, I'm paying them, but yet they're asking me. And I, I appreciate the fact that they would want to learn, but I think, um, it's really important for an adoptee to find someone who already has the education. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I don't think there is a lot of training that's going on that actually focuses on adult adoptees and our, our issues, unless, you know, the person is an adult adoptee themselves. And then Emma mentioned earlier, the fog which Emma, would you like to explain to people how, what you think the fog is like, well, how did that present for you? Um, I would say that coming out of the fog for me could be any number of situations. It could just be the fog of your entire life. It could be the fog of adoption. It could be the fog of being an alcoholic and trying to get sober and realizing that you were, you know, systematically trying to kill yourself with the alcohol but for me, just it's that clarity of when you open your mind and you stop being dualistic and thinking black and white terms, and you start to entertain the idea of what if this were to happen or is this happening? And then trying to compare in your life of, of connecting the dots. It's all about all of a sudden you start connecting all the dots and things start slowly starting to make sense to you. And so you can make better decisions. Yeah, it's that I think it's that critical thinking aspect that we're taught to not engage in as adoptees. We're taught to not think too hard about what it what it really means when we're told we're special. To mm -hmm. not think too hard about what it really means when we're told we're chosen. What it really means when we're told this is where God meant for us to be, or you know any one of the other platitudes that people throw at adoptees we're taught to not think too much about those things and so for me coming out of the fog which in rehab terms the fog is what the fear obligation and guilt mm -hmm. you know they really like the acronyms <laughs> so fear mm -hmm. obligation mm -hmm. and guilt you know mm -hmm. it's like telling somebody you're fine we know in in rehab circles fine means fucked up insecure neurotic <laughs> and emotional <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> so the fog is fear obligation and guilt and we are indoctrinated into that fear obligation and guilt obligation is huge as an adoptee guilt oh my god don't say anything negative about adoption Holy don't, don't, don't find your birth parents i mean what if they didn't tell their husband about you Oh, I know. Oh, You're, how you'd can, be selfish to do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. How can you destroy these people's lives? You're so selfish. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that critical thinking aspect that in a cult like environment is highly discouraged. You know, don't take part mm -hmm. in critical thinking. So, that makes me think of the bite model. Yeah. Steve Hassan. 
Yeah, we've talked about that in earlier episodes about how yeah, the way to model... keep information away from people because if an organization or a person doesn't want you to have a, out of the fog experience, then they're going to suppress all of your, your ways of getting information. Yeah, so you can even run into adoptee therapists who are still what a lot of us would consider foggy. You know, and so I try to hold space for people wherever they are in this process of navigating adoption. But I would strongly suggest that if you're looking for a therapist and you're looking for an adoptee competent therapist, that you also ask your adoptee competent therapist some questions about where they are in their own journey as an adoptee. How do they feel about adoption? What are their thoughts on adoptee trauma? What are their thoughts on the lifelong aspect mm. of navigating adoption trauma? Because, you know, we talk a lot about healing in, in pretty much any community where trauma exists. And there's this idea that, well, you can heal completely, but the problem with adoption is that there's no complete healing possible, in my opinion, because it you never stop being confronted by different aspects of being adopted as you go through life. It's more about developing coping skills mm -hmm. and the ability to think critically about what you're dealing with. So when you started to think more critically about these things if your younger self came to you today and said i'm looking for a therapist what kind of advice would you give yourself i think everything we just talked about of making sure that the person even though they say they're adoptee competent ask them, what, what does that look like to you? What does that mean? What's that definition? Because sometimes we can just buy off on the fact that they say they are, they believe this. And when they describe it to you, you're like, oh, well, that's, we have two different ideas of what that same thing is. Yeah. And a good therapist, just so people know, a good therapist will check with you as you go through therapy to see, do you feel like this is still working for you? Mm -hmm. And if, you or they don't feel like the therapy is progressing in a healthy way, a good therapist will offer to help you find a new therapist. Yes. Right yeah, they'll, they'll actually ask you those questions and, and they won't be offended if you say, you know, I, I don't think this is working for me. Can you, you know, help me find somebody new. So now you have gone into new therapeutic relationships as a result of the pain that this therapist caused you. Do you feel like there's a particular modality? Because people talk about modalities of therapy. There's there's um, family systems therapy, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's EMDR therapy, there's narrative therapy, and there are so many different kinds. Mm 
of therapy that therapists specialize in. And because we're all different, we're going to react differently. You know, just because something works for Emma doesn't necessarily mean that it worked for me or for Lynn. But have you found something that you feel like has been really valuable to you? I've had an eclectic approach where I've used everything you just talked about. It's They've all had an influence on me. And um, EMDR was how I wrote my first book. I think I made that pretty clear in the narrative. Um, it, it helped me really connect a lot of dots that I hadn't yet. Um, and I'm just currently in, uh, interviewing a new therapist that is adoptee competent. And I haven't met her yet, but I will definitely be using everything we've just been talking about to make sure that... Um, you know, I'll be getting out of that therapy session what it is that I came there for. So I'm excited about that. I'm always looking for, I'm never going to be done. I'm just always going to be trying to expand and evolve. And I think that's what I, you know, that, that joy point that I hit when um, I was able to deconstruct my old way of thinking and ask myself, who would I rather be? What would I rather think? What would I rather say to my younger self? And, and to go forth. And so all of that's had a huge impact for my life to, to keep growing in a way now that I don't, I no longer feel life is like crashing in on me. I feel like um, I'm, I'm leading the way of more or less the way, the direction I want to be headed. That's great. I, that's wonderful to hear. And I'm really happy that you're getting to that because some people never get over something that like what you went through. Well, I had to go crashing into a wall to get there. You know, you hear that whole story of you have to burn before you can grow new. And that's exactly what happened to me. And it wasn't any one of those journeys that I had. It was all of them collectively where brought me to a point of my life where it was either going to be life or death. And it was that critical. Um, I had an adoptive brother that died pretty much the day he turned 60 because he never solved any of his adoption trauma or angst, never attributed any of his addictions uh, to the, the trauma. Um, and he just wasn't able to ever come to that point where I was able to, and I don't know what the difference is, if it's resilience or tenacity, or um, I don't really know, but I can feel grateful about it that somehow I broke through whatever it was and life isn't, you know, always terrific, but, and I still have challenges, but I still always maintain that joy and knowing a knowingness that I'm comfortable in my own skin now, even as an adoptee. And I kind of cherish my primal wound now. It's like, ah, okay. You know, I'm tender with myself and I give myself grace where, and I'm my own best friend. And I never did that before. I didn't even understand what that meant awesome it sounds like you've built a true authentic self um and that like you said you're your own best friend you've learned how to love yourself and now you are in a position to find a healthy therapist who's going to help you right you're going to go on because i do have two great therapists now but this another one is just going to be just to see if I can be taken to yet another level of awareness and enlightenment. We'll see. 
I'll let you know. <laughs> well, and one of the one of the sad truths of this is that because of the nature of adoption and when adoption became really popular, I there hasn't been a lot of exploration or research done that focused on the outcomes for adult adoptees who were, you know, quote, out of the fog. So it's going to take, I think, a new generation of therapists or the current generation being able to set aside the adoption narrative, set aside that, you know, fierce clinging to that dogma and being willing to really listen to those of us who are who are are able to open up about it you know part of the problem is a lot of adoptees just don't feel safe really expressing what they're thinking what they're feeling what they're going through we haven't created a safe container in our culture by and large for adopted adopted people to really talk about and explore you know, how adoption affects us and how it affects generations moving forward from us. You know, for those of us who have chosen to have children, the impact continues. You know, it, it has much greater implications than just the adopted person themselves. And so until we have that pool of people, until the DSM is willing to acknowledge, you know, CPTSD until the um, greater community is willing to acknowledge that this narrative is, is not a healthy one. Psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists aren't going to receive a lot of education in uh, the severance in, you know, in the maternal trauma, in the continuing trauma and so I think for now a lot of us are having to educate our therapists we are having to motivate our therapists to actually learn about what we're experiencing and for a lot of us the best we're going to get is finding a therapist who is trauma competent yeah and so if you're if you're listening to this and you're thinking i'm never going to find an adoptee competent therapist if you see somebody who says they're adoption competent therapy therapist you kind of want to be careful mm -hmm. you know because just the word adoption followed by competent is kind of a red flag in some ways uh, yeah lynn um i would also say be sure you know whether your therapist is a first parent or an adoptive parent. I think that's something that you need to understand because of their own biases. Um, I'm not saying that they couldn't positively treat you, um, but be aware because yeah. if, if they're not entering into their own form of therapy, and I don't know if that's well known, but good therapists have their own therapists yeah. um, and looking at their own biases then they're not going to be able to help you um, until they figure out their own fog and their own, you know, biases and agendas. Yeah, because so. we see a lot. We That's a good point. We see a lot of the books and therapists and people who are considered to be experts 
uh, you look at Nancy Verrier, she was an adoptive parent. And yes, she did a lot of research. And some of what she says about adoptees uh, is, is true and will resonate with people. But she could not help but see things through the lens of being an adoptive parent. And so her own experience is predicated on I on that relationship and on her knowledge being strictly observational. She did, you know, so you have to be careful when you rely on, you know, wisdom from sources like that, because they are through that that lens so it's a good point yeah you want to be careful and you want to understand that you could receive services from somebody who is an adoptive parent or a foster parent but they are going to have their own agenda and their own uh, needs that they want fulfilled and they may be completely unconscious of that fact, but it's still going to exist regardless. So as well yeah. as birth parents, birth parents. Yeah, who've surrendered so. kids because they have, I found that a lot of them uh, have been through a tremendous amount of trauma of their own. A lot of times that's unresolved, but they also seem to have, for the most part, a desperate need to believe that, that, adoption is good and that's yeah because they don't want to admit that maybe they made a mistake and that's their fog yeah we have to be careful of if we're taking if you know if we're going to a therapist to help us you know i know lots of birth parents who are out of the fog who would be awesome therapists but it's just one of those it's another thing to look for um so you don't get into the type of relationship where you're being invalidated from the very get-go. Yeah. It's complicated. It's a it's a complicated situation. And we are going to include in the show notes uh, the information to find Emma's books. Uh, I'm going to include a link to Lynn, the adopted genealogist. Uh, <laughs> and we will include some links to lists of uh, you know adoptee competent therapists who again even with those you know you want to kind of do your research will include the links to some questions that you uh, would want to ask a therapist to remember that you're interviewing them for a job is what you're doing I, and, you know, we'll try to include some resources that people can uh, access to kind of help as you move forward with, you know, your current therapy, or if you're looking for a therapist and kind of in, in closing, Emma, did you have anything you would like to add? You did say something about kind of the purpose that you had in writing your book. If you wanted to share that, that would be lovely. Well, and I think that fits right in right now, because what's the first thing we tell a new adoptee or one that is starting to connect the dots of their life is 
um, or they're about to go to reunion, we say, do you have a counselor? You should get some therapy to make sure that, you know, everything, um, uh, you have a success, you better chance to have a successful reunion. And we send them to therapy. But we we are we should at that point say and make sure you're going to a reputable therapist and one that like Lynn said and you said Andy about the biases that's so important to make sure that they're not out for on a their own agenda. But I feel I felt a certain responsibility um, just as I did to do a lawsuit or take my therapist to court so other people may not be abused by her. And if someone had taken her to court earlier, maybe I wouldn't have been abused. So in the book, I'm hoping that I'm giving people permission that if they can find either an advocate, a mentor, someone, a friend that you know you trust and a family member that you could talk to. Um, and if you do, if you can go to a counselor, make sure you check them out top to bottom. Yeah. Well, thank you. Because I mean, I think it's, kind of good for people to understand that when you're starting to come out of that fear obligation and guilt you're coming out of this cult-like control system that you've been living with your whole life especially you know if you've been adopted like so many of us as infants or toddlers you don't really have a before and you're trying to figure out your identity and you're trying to move forward so having, I, I don't know, I'm trying to say something. I think you probably know what I'm trying to say. Somebody chime in here. <laughs> Lynn, what well, are you thinking? I'm thinking that um, I want to go back to what Emma said about the joy of and the hope that she has for growth with a future therapist. And as she was talking about that, I was thinking, oh, there's probably going to be a third book about... <laughs> What happened after? Because I know that this uh, cultic relationship you were in was a long time ago in your life and you're in a different place now. And um, so I'm thinking, do you have any plans for the future or would you uh, like to share with the listeners any final thoughts as it relates to having more joy and um, post-recovery from a cultic and abusive relationship? I left out a, a very important part of my healing, and that was finding my adoptee community. And oh, yeah, very important. <laughs> I, I dedicated, <laughs> dedicated the second book um, to not only exploited people, but to my adoptee community. And I feel so uh, grateful that we're all in a time where we're able to have all of the, I'm looking at you two right now and we're talking about and exchanging information about this important topic that wouldn't have been possible in decades before. So I feel like the next generation of adoptees are, it's just going to keep getting better and better of being able to have this information. And maybe it won't take me 29 years to take, you know, to write a book about what happened uh, it took as long as it took. Okay. It, that's, I'm not saying I should have done it earlier. It, it's just that um, all of the things that I've reached out in a healthy way, in a healthy way for help now is really paying off. So I really appreciate being <laughs> on your podcast. Can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Right, well, thank you so much for being here. We've really enjoyed talking with you and 
Uh, Lynn, did you have anything you would like to say before we, we sign off on this episode for today? No, I just want to thank Emma for being here and appreciate the timing of your, the, when your book came out, you know, it just so happens that we asked to interview you. And um, when we realized your book just released, we thought, well, we better read that book. And it was, I read it quickly. I know Andy did, and it was just a really great book. I, I hope all the listeners will purchase it. And uh, we would love to hear from anyone who has any thoughts or comments. Yeah. And if you have been through a situation like this, or you find yourself in a situation like this, we will include some resources in the show notes for you. Uh, there are communities that are springing up that are resources for people who are coming out of these high control environments. And as Emma said, you know, we're here as part of the adoptee community to uh, support one another and hopefully you'll find a, a space that feels like uh, it's supportive for you if you as a listener are are experiencing these kinds of things so yep there's a lot of support groups um you all can reach out to me at any time at the adoptive genealogist at gmail if you need specific referrals, I know Adoptees Connect is one that a lot of people are involved in. Emma, do you have any uh, resources that you wanted to share? Um, I would say the one that would uh, be affiliated with cult-like situations is a new organization called Hashtag I Got Out. And it, it's a real important one, I think, for all kinds of people that have been in different kind of culty situations to under, start to understand what that looks like. That is really interesting. Like I've heard of them. I know that, that it was started by uh, the hosts of uh, a little oh, bit of culty. Yeah. And I know yeah. Leah, I know Leah Remini, uh, they have a group for people leaving Scientology. I'm curious, like we'll have to check in with you at some point in the future if the people in the group I got out, if they recognize uh, adoption as being a little bit culty, or if you'll experience the kind of pushback that adoptees experience in a lot of spaces because people don't understand that adoption is also a cult-like kind of movement. I'm not getting that impression at all. They've already published one of my stories on their website. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I feel like they're very much in tune and understanding. And uh, just like I said, the Dr. Yanya Lalich, um, Take Back Your Life is an excellent audio book if you want to listen to it. Um, and I, it's got a lot of good information and I had no pushback whatsoever with her endorsing the book. She completely was on board. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. being an adoptee. Yeah. yeah. Adoptee related stuff. Okay. Well, that is really interesting. Maybe people are starting to think a little more critically about how this whole system works. And that is our goal ultimately is to help people understand and to 
uh, more critically think about adoption. And thank you so much for coming and being brave enough, you know, to write your book and to come on to these different podcasts and talk about therapy because there is so much um, stigma attached still to a lot of people when it comes to therapy and part of this series and part of the adoption files files is that we want adoptees to find this the support that we need while we go through uh, all these different aspects of how our lives are affected by adoption so thank you so much thank you Thanks, to the Emma. listeners thank you both yeah. <laughs> thank you so much all right have a lovely day bye 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 bye